Holy is our God. Amen. Take your Bible. Please turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, the gospel narrative of Matthew. In a moment, we'll read out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. We do begin a brand new series uh, today as we will journey in a six-week series entitled More Like Jesus. And I pray that in this new year, that might be a prayer for every child of God that we grow to be more like Jesus. Amen? All right. You're a little sluggish today. I feel you. I am too. Let me, uh, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 6, share with you a couple of things. Uh, number one, Dawn and Gardner and I just want to say to our church family, uh, thank you. Thank you for your prayers on our behalf. Thank you for your calls, your texts, your food, your tangible acts of kindness to us in the last two and a half weeks after the uh, sudden passing of Dom's mom and Gardner's wife, Sunday. And so we thank you for that. Uh, the community of faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ, mean much to us. And so thank you for living life beside us during these days. And uh, your, your touches and your prayers mean much. And we thank you. Secondly, I want to call your attention to a very important anniversary on our staff team. Uh, come Thursday of this week will be the 15th anniversary of Leon Burdett who started out as our education pastor or grow pastor as we call him and now is our uh, executive pastor over ministry and operations, which is a big umbrella. Uh, and want to encourage you to express your appreciation to Leon and Twyla somehow this week and even today as you see them. 15-year tenure is a pretty big deal. And for Leon, yes, indeed. If you don't know, Leon is my right arm. He is the one that day by day, week by week, helps us stay mission-focused and mission-follow-through. He keeps us on task. All the nuts and bolts behind the scenes, he is micromanaging many of those. And, and so he is a great strength to me. I'm very thankful for his role. He's one of the hardest working guys that, that I know. He's normally here before anybody else. And uh, he has one of the largest job descriptions out of all of us on staff. Uh, but uh, say a word of encouragement and appreciation to him. Uh, and Twyla, because they have been such a blessing and a steadfast force of support here for Liberty Baptist Church to make disciples and help equip us to be multiplying disciples. Now, number three, when you came in, you should have seen this in your seat. If you were like me, every time I moved, it fell on the floor. And so I want you to go ahead and locate these two cards that were in your chair, hopefully, when you walked in. Uh, the small card is a sign-up card. It says chapter a day. Here's the challenge. We would like our Liberty family to join together and commit to read God's Word together throughout 2024. Now, this chapter a day will take us through the New Testament and most of Psalm in 2024. 
And so the small card is there for you to sign up and just say, yes, I'm a, I would like to join my Liberty family and read through the New Testament and Psalm in 24 together. You can use the QR code. encourage you to do that. Go to the camera setting on your phone, uh, scan it, and uh, when that orange-yellow bar pops up, uh, hit it. It's going to ask for your name and your email address. And so when you give it your name and email address, the second thing that's real important we want you to do is there's a survey that'll pop up, five questions. It's going to have an age bracket. It's going to ask two questions about Bible reading and two questions about prayer. It's important to fill out the survey because it gives us individually a benchmark of where we are in abiding in God's Word and abiding in prayer. We will know that you sign up by name when you sign up. However, the survey is anonymous. We don't know what you put. It's not linked to you for us, and it's there for your benefit. So in about three months, you'll get the same survey to ask the same questions, and you'll be able to answer and measure six months and so forth throughout the year. And so we invite you to this scripture challenge, a chapter a day, Join us. Now, if you don't do the QR code stuff, that's what this card is there for physically. If you will print legibly your name and email, and then when you exit this morning, uh, the black bows, you can drop these in there. But we'd love for our Liberty family uh, to sign up and be a part. Now, this is your guide, chapter a day guide. So uh, take it, put it in your Bible, hang on to it. And uh, we hope that not only will you read a chapter a day, but you observe the truth that's in that chapter. What did God say? What does it mean? And then make application of that truth in your life. What am I going to do about it? How do I respond? So a chapter a day. Go ahead, and if you haven't, take time to sign up as I talk and filibuster and give you that opportunity. How about that? And once you are, are there... And once you've signed up, go ahead and look into Matthew chapter 6 as we talk about our measure of a child who knows God. More like Jesus, I want to be. And here's the cool thing. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, remember Philippians? God says, that work that he began in us, Paul was confident that his father would complete that work in us. And that work of salvation that began is a work of being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and then the work of sanctification is one of growing to be more like Jesus. And so God is at work in you as a child of God. He is growing you to be more like Jesus. And it is a good prayer for every child of God Oh, make me more like Jesus. And so let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15 uh, in your text this morning. If you're able, I want to ask that you stand for the honor of God's Word as you're standing. We welcome those who are worshiping online with us. We've had a strong uh, group of folks online every week, and we thank you for worshiping with us today. Look at verse 5, Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, this is Jesus speaking, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets 
that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things that you need of before you ask him. Verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. This ought to be familiar. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to stop right there and pray. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your spirit, and as your word is washing in over us, that you would renew our minds daily and conform us to be more like Jesus. Use your word and work by your spirit today to draw us near and conform us into Christ's image. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for the good work that is in every child of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Over the next six weeks, we're going to walk carefully through what we call at Liberty our six measures of a disciple. At Liberty, we say it this way. We exist to glorify God and make disciples as we gladly spend our lives to see the gospel transform the next generation. Does that sound familiar? And so it is important if we know our mission and commission is to make disciples, it's important for us to create clarity about what in the world does the Bible say a disciple, a follower of Christ is. And so that's exactly why we have identified six marks of discipleship at Liberty that we call measures. And so the first one is a child who knows God. That's what we're going to deal with today. Second one, a student who lives changed. A disciple of Christ is also a friend who loves others, a helper who gives generously, that messenger who goes boldly, and a guide who shows the way to Jesus. These measures identify marks of a disciple And they are helps for you and I to measure our growth as we grow to become more like Jesus in these six areas. This morning, we're going to look at measure number one, a child who knows God. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says it this way, but to all who did believe, who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. By grace, through faith, in Christ, we have been declared to be children of God. Under our measure, a child who knows God, we have a statement at liberty, and this is the statement. You need to hear it, and it needs to be familiar. As a child who knows God, you are a son, 
You are a daughter. You are an heir to God's kingdom. And you live daily in his presence. You bear his name as your own. And wherever you go, you represent him. You have an inheritance that cannot be taken away because nothing can separate you from your father for he loves you. Your needs are met. Your worries are cared for. And in every way you are provided for because you are a child of the father. And every day as a child who knows God, we grow up in this identity. In our text out of Matthew chapter 6, you might be saying, what in the world does the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, this passage about being hypocrites and not being hypocrites and how to pray, what does that have to do with a child who knows God? There are two important uh, attributes of children who know God that I think are highlighted in Matthew chapter 6. If you have your sermon notes, number one is this, a child who knows God lives out a sincere faith. It is a faith that is sincere. It is from the inside out. It is a heart kind of faith. Now, remember, as we read in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6 is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches his followers about kingdom character and kingdom conduct. His instructions to teach his followers how to live a life that is dedicated to the Lord, that is surrendered to his uh, commands, and a life that is free from hypocrisy and full of love and full of grace. You might want to write down Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. It is a key verse to interpret this Sermon on the Mount and to understand Matthew chapter 6 that we just read. Matthew 5, 20 says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the righteousness of those that Jesus said, don't let your righteousness be like theirs, it was external appearance and it was mechanical. Their words and deeds may have appeared to be religious, but their hearts were apparently far from Jesus. And Jesus in this passage calls from an inside-out kind of righteousness that is possible only by grace through faith in Christ in that personal relationship with the Father. So a child who knows God is called to live our life with a sincere faith and not in hypocrisy. Live our life with a personal relationship with Jesus, not with just religious activity. In Jesus' day, as we read in this time frame, there were three signs of being religious or three signs of piety. One sign is, is giving alms to the poor, benevolence to the poor. Another sign of being religious was praying. Another sign of being religious was fasting, and Jesus identifies all three of these. But the important thing, as Jesus calls them out, he is not focusing on the deed of giving to the poor or the deed or activity of prayer or fasting. He is focused on the heart of motivation and desire behind them. Are you with me? And so Jesus is looking past the external, looking inside at the heart, and he's calling his followers that from your heart follow after me. 
in a heart relationship, in a sincere faith, in a faith that is allied through a personal relationship. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. I think it's important for our context that we read beginning with chapter 5. Jesus said, beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Clarification, he said, beware of practicing your righteous deeds before other people in order to be seen by them. He did not say, do not practice your righteousness before others. It's important to realize that in the ESV said, beware. The CSB says, be careful. The New King James said, take heed of. So Jesus is saying, when you do these things, the motive behind doing them is most important. Do not do these religious activities just to be seen by others. Rather, do them in a a communion, an abiding relationship with our Father. So when we do these things, give to the poor, pray and fast, we must be aware of practicing them and beware not to practice just so others can see how religious we are. Now, there's no good Baptist that does that, right? Well, there's none of us that are going to admit we do it that way. But how many of us have wondered what others are thinking when we worship, when we pray, when we give? It's not wrong to be seen praying, but it's wrong to pray in order to be seen. It's it's not wrong to be seen giving to the poor, but it's wrong to give to the poor in order to be seen. It's not wrong to be seen fasting, but it's wrong to fast in order to be seen. You get the message, right? And so the public activity is not the sinful activity. It's the heart motive that why do I do what I do as a child of God? Am I doing it to be seen by others, recognized by others, and praised by others? Or am I doing this because of my love and devotion to a heavenly father who first loved me and gave his son in order to rescue me? Jesus said, we must not pray just to be seen by man. But he does not forbid public prayer. And we know that biblically there are examples after examples after example of public prayer from Old Testament to New Testament. So the uh, hypocritical type praying is just to be seen by others. The motivation is to impress man. Whereas Jesus calls for a genuine, sincere kind of faith that is from a heart devotion to our Father. That you might see me praying, you might see me responding in benevolence to somebody else, or you might see me fasting to draw near to God, but that is not my motive. My motive is communion with my Father who first loved me. Look at verse 5. It's interesting. When we read it, it says, and when you pray, and so the, the understanding is that a child who knows God will do what? Pray, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. And then he tells us how not to be like them, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues. By the way, standing was a very common posture for prayer during this time. So standing in the synagogue, standing on the street corners of the street, that they may be seen by whom? By others, by men. And then Jesus said, surely I say to you, they have their reward. 
If you're doing what you do in religious activity to be seen and recognized by people, by men, by others, then the only accolade you're going to get is here on earth. And he said, don't do that. In Jesus' day, people were expected to pray at the hour of the morning prayer and the hour of the evening sacrifices. Some even uh, had a noonday prayer time. And the picture is of a person contriving to be at that busy location for that morning hour of prayer, for that evening sacrifice, that, that if I time leaving the house in order to get to the street corner at just the right time of the morning prayer, then I can stand and I can pray at the busy street corner for everybody to see and hear. And what will they think of me? Oh, look at how religious that person is. You see, they were in their hearts striving to be seen by others rather than communing with their father in sincere faith and sincere prayer. Jesus said, don't be like them. But look at verse 6. But you, children who know God, when you pray, go into your room or into your closet. And when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, that closet there describes a small storage closet inside an otherwise single-room Palestinian home. The closet, that small room, is the most private part of the house. But here's the point. The point is total privacy in our communion with our Father apart from distractions of the world around us. Our culture, American culture, is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We have a lot of distractions, right? And we're so busy that when we slow down to pray, many of us find it really uncomfortable to slow down. Not only do we find it uncomfortable because we prize accomplishment and production and being productive in the day, we think that when we slow down to commune with our Father in prayer, it's idle or wasted time. And if we're not careful, we're thinking in our time of slowing down trying to pray, I need to be doing something. I need to be accomplishing something. When here is the reality, Jesus is teaching us that the very most important thing for a child of God to do, a child who knows God, is commune and have a relationship with him by abiding in prayer. Prayer is the most important work that we do as children of God. And when we accomplish the work of prayer, then the work of everything else falls into place. But the way we're wired and the way the world is wired around us and and creates those voices that make us think weird things, we think that, that we need to be up doing something and accomplishing something when we try to take time to pray. But prayer is the work that makes everything else in life work. The point is that prayer is between a child of God and his father and not a public display to impress others. Jesus is not saying you cannot pray in public. He's not saying corporate prayer is not a good thing. He's not saying that nobody else can ever hear your prayer because that, that we know those things are evident in Scripture. What he's saying is you need to have a discipline to where you find a private place free of distractions that you can commune with your Father above. 
where he can hear from you, but even more importantly, where you can hear from him. A sincere faith. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Rather than long prayers or endless repetition type prayers, virtually meaningless gibberish. You know what gibberish is? An attempt to wake God up. An attempt to persuade God to love you more, to be on your side, to have favor on you. Don't be like that. Our God is not a God that we have to wake up. He's not a God who is unaware. He's not a God that is unloving and uncaring toward his children. He is very attentive. But don't think by your vain repetition and your own hysterical gibberish that you're going to please God or find greater favor with him. We think back to the Old Testament, to 1 Kings chapter 18, when the prophets of Baal all day long danced and screamed and shouted, even cut themselves and chanted, trying to wake their God up to respond. We know that he was no God at all. But we need to understand who our Father is, and and we need to understand that He is never too busy. He is never deaf to our call, and He's not a forgetful God. He is always, always attentive to the call of His child. In fact, He invites us to call upon me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you know us not. He invites us to cast our care upon him, knowing first that he cares for us. And so Jesus said, don't don't be insincere like the hypocrites. Don't don't pray just to be seen. Don't think that that you can just go on with vain repetitions and gibberish in order to persuade a holy God. You can't do that. But here's what you can do. Just come. As you are, as a child who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and say, Abba, Father, and call upon your God. We should reject the idea that our prayers must be good enough to merit God's attention. There's some that that struggle with this. Here's the reality. Our prayers are never going to impress a holy God. Our prayers are never going to be good enough to earn his favor. But God is kind and compassionate enough to listen, and that's called grace. The purpose of prayer is not to inform or persuade God, but to come before him sincerely and purposefully and lovingly. Someone put it this way, prayer is sharing the needs, the burdens, and the hunger of our hearts before our Heavenly Father, who already knows what we need, but who wants us to recognize what we need and ask of him. He wants to hear from us. He wants to abide with us more than we could ever want to commune with him because his love for us is so much greater than our love for him. So the child of God lives out a sincere faith by praying to express our heart of adoration and love and devotion to God, not to impress him or anyone around us. Now, lest we think that being a child of God with a sincere faith has only to do with prayer, understand that our sincerity of faith is extended to all other areas of our faith and practice, from raising our hands in worship to preaching a sermon, 
from serving on serve teams to rocking babies in the nursery, from giving your money and generosity to evangelizing those around you and engaging a community, our call as children who know God is to walk with a sincere faith. And that sincere faith is just realizing the truth of Scripture, that I am a needy sinner. And that all that I am and all that I have is indeed by God's grace. And I fall miserably short of his standard of holiness. But God, rich in mercy, abounding in grace, gave his son to rescue me. When we recognize that we're sinners who have been redeemed solely by the blood of the Lamb, and we're still totally dependent on God, then, then we begin to walk with a sincere faith. Number two on your notes. A child of God who knows, a child who knows God lives out a simple faith. A simple faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You believe that? For God so loved you, a sinner, that he gave his one and only son. That if you, a sinner, condemned and already in your sin, under the wrath of a holy God, if you would believe upon Jesus, then you would not perish but have eternal life. Do we believe that? to all of those who did receive him, who believed in his name, that God has actually declared you and I in Christ to be the very children of God? Do, do, Do we believe that that work of salvation that God began when we recognized that we were sinners and we desired to turn from our sin and we recognized God's love demonstrated through God's Son who came and lived that perfect life on earth but died in our place, shed his blood to pay our sin debt? Do we really believe that when we called upon Jesus, oh dear Jesus, I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. Will you forgive me and cleanse me and be my savior? I surrender to your thought. Do you believe God answered that prayer? And if we do, then it is true. The God who began that work of salvation in you has guaranteed he will complete it. It's not up to you or I to try harder to measure up to God. The reason Jesus died in our place, shed his blood, was buried and rose again is because we didn't measure up and we never would, but he measured up on our behalf. And so it's all an act of grace. And so it's a simple faith of believing God is who he said he was and that God did what he said he did through his son and God promises to do what he said he's going to do in completing our salvation. It is a trust and belief. And by abiding in prayer, don't overcomplicate prayer. Prayer is communication, talking with our Father. Prayer is all about relationship. E.M. Bounds said this. He said, prayer is the helpless and needy child crying to the compassion of the Father's heart and to the bounty and power of the Father's hand. Prayer is the needy child coming to the sufficient Father to meet us where we are. Hey, church, we have a good, good father, right? Do you believe he loves you more than any other could possibly love you? 
Do you believe the, the Father is at work for your greatest good every day, even when life is hard and not real good? Do you believe our Father is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort? Do you believe that he is fully able to do all things? He's never unaware, he's never unavailable, and he's never unable. Your father, my father, is the God who made the sun rise this morning. Your father and my father in Christ is the God who put the moon and the stars in the sky and named them. Your father and my father is the God who spoke all creation into existence. And he is the God that is orchestrating that creation to its ultimate end for his ultimate glory. Our father is a sufficient heavenly father. And he loved you and I first so that we could have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Max Lucado says it this way, Our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayer makes a difference. We need to wrap around the reality. It's not about how good we are at praying. It's about how great the God to whom we pray is. And see, really what drives us to prayer as children of God is weakness and dependence. When I realize I'm weak in need of a Savior, then I run to Him. When I realize I can't and I'm totally dependent upon His power at work within me, then I call upon Him. I surrender. I depend upon Him. Jesus said, do not be like the hypocrites who are mechanical and external in their faith, who are insincere. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then he says, pray like this. We call this the Lord's Prayer. It's probably better suited to be called a model prayer because when Jesus said, pray in this manner, he, he's not just simply saying, memorize this prayer and quote it. I, I grew up playing sports and particularly baseball team before every game. You know the prayer that we said together? It's the Lord's Prayer. It went something like this. Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, hey! It meant absolutely nothing to all of us. And so he wasn't saying just memorize a prayer and say it 10 times a day and you're good to go. What in the world is this model prayer teaching us? This model prayer is really a pattern to pray and to pray after. And I want to hit some highlights. We're not going to exegete the prayer. We don't have time to do that. But as we read this model prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's praise. When we pray, we have reason to praise our God. Our Father, we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And because we are his children, we can freely call upon him anytime, any place. He never sleeps and he's never unavailable. Father, pater in the Greek 
Aramaic is Abba, Daddy, Papa. It's a very intimate term. And so when we pray, we pray in the certainty that our Father is hearing us, the one who loves us more than any other and the one who watches over us 24-7 and the one who is at work with his promise for our greatest good, even in the midst of a broken world where we experience trial and tribulation, pain and sorrow, death and suffering, our God is still holding us in his care. And in those moments, it means something to say, Abba, Father, who aren't in heaven. He is in the splendor of his glory in that heavenly throne room. And then hallowed be thy name. It translates the form of the verb hagiatso, which means to set something apart as holy. Though your father is personal and though he is intimate, though he knows you by name, though he numbers the hair upon your head, there is not another like him. He is set apart and set above any other and all others. There is no rival to him. He alone is the Lord God Almighty, but he alone is the one that by grace through faith in Christ, you and I can say, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Father. And he knows who you are. He knows where you're at. And he knows what you need. He doesn't roll his eyes at you because you sinned again. If earthly parents will receive with open arms children who come who are hurt, who are scared, who who have messed up and are, are apologizing, if we know how to receive them and love on them and sit them straight again, how much more will our Heavenly Father embrace us and set us straight? Praise Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Remember who he is and remember whose you are purpose your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we do not pray in order to manipulate a sovereign god we're not going to change him but in our prayer we are being changed What prayer does is line us up with the truth of Scripture. What prayer does is draw us near to the heart and the will and the purpose of God so that we can pray, not my will be done, but yours. Not my agenda, but yours. That we pray with that purpose in mind. I exist to glorify God in all that I do. Wherever I go, as I go, Father, your will be done. On earth, in me, as it is in heaven. But then provision, give us this day our daily bread. That prayer makes a request for our needs, and it's not just food only. It's symbolic of all of our needs, our needs and not our greeds, but our needs. And the petition recognizes our dependency upon a father to meet our daily needs. All that we are, all that we have is by his grace. Father, give me today what I need for today. And I'll trust you for tomorrow's need when it comes. Pardon. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The debts here, he's talking to his followers, are incurred by believers, followers of Christ when they sin. Immeasurably more important than our need for daily bread is our need for continual forgiveness That's why 1 John 1, 9 exists for you and I. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Because our greatest problem is sin, our greatest need is forgiveness, it's good to pray every time and be cleansed through confession and through asking forgiveness of our sin. Though we have been forgiven for the ultimate penalty of sin, we still have a fallen flesh, we live in a fallen world, and we still fall to the temptation to sin daily. Therefore, we are to pray, seeking forgiveness so that we can draw near to God. Jesus gives us a prerequisite for receiving forgiveness in these words. It means that as we forgive others, we will be forgiven. Our penalty of sin been paid for. We are a child who knows God. That is secure. But sin unconfessed in our lives clogs up the power of God at work in us. We quench the Holy Spirit. And so we need to daily confess and daily turn from that sin so the power of God can work at its full maximum strength inside of us. Does that make sense? But here's something else. If you who have been forgiven freely for all of your sin refuse to forgive others, then there is going to be a dam, damming up the power of God at work in your life. For if you refuse to forgive those that trespass against you, then it's going to withhold that daily forgiveness of the Father toward you. It's going to impede God's work in your life. And so the way to open that up wide, the way to break that, that dam uh, down is to uh, forgive those who injure us just like we have been forgiven in Christ. That's not easy. But that is the prerequisite that Jesus gives in this model prayer for receiving continually that flow of God's power at work in our life through forgiveness. Does that make sense? There's some people always who said, how can I ask God to forgive me again? I've asked forgiveness and I've asked for strength and I commit the same sin and return the next day with the same request. I'm making no progress whatsoever. Can I get an amen? Don't say it. Almost every Christian struggles with one particular sin or the other. Our tongues may curse, boast, lie, and gossip. Our hearts may be filled with pride, envy, or lust. We may crave alcohol, drugs, and sensual indulgence. Yes, Christians. We may be short-tempered and critical. Doubt and dark thoughts may hold our minds captive, and we wonder how in the world we can enter God's presence with this load of sin. Can I remind you of one word? Gospel. Gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. How do we as parents treat our children when they come confessing their weakness? If we as sinful parents know how to comfort and forgive, how much more does our Heavenly Father know how to receive, comfort, forgive, and set us back up? Protection is the last model that we have here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The petition is another plea for God to provide what we and ourselves do not have. It is an appeal to God to place a watch over our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our feet, our hands, and in whatever we see, hear, or say, and any place we go, and anything that we do, that he will protect us from that temptation of sin. It's worthy to pray. It's in that model prayer. God, I'm not strong enough in my own might. I need you to send the alarm. I need you 
to set me straight. I need you to protect me and set that guard round about me. As we talk about children of God who live out a sincere faith and a simple faith, it just comes down, do we believe God is who He says He is? And do we believe He'll do what He said He will do for His children? So this week in the Live It Out, I want you to keep reading through the model prayer. Go through those components. Pray them out loud to the Lord. And then as you have opportunity through the week, not only pray it for yourself, find another believer in your life group, another believer in your family, another believer that that is living this life alongside of you and pray this prayer for them. I want to close with a quote by J.I. Packer. It fits. He says, Do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny, I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother and sister too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night. And as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free and ask that you may be unable to live as one who knows it, knows it is all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret. A happy life? Yes, certainly. But we have something both higher and more profound to say. This is the Christian secret in the Christian life and of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. And may this secret become fully yours and fully mine. What is it? I am a child of God. In fact, say that with me. Wake you up. We'll go say amen. Say that with me. I am a child of God. That means something. It makes all the difference in the world. But if you're here this morning or online and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that. And we understand how much God loved us that he gave his son Jesus. We understand Jesus died on the cross not because he was guilty, but he took our place. And he shed his blood that our sin debt could be paid in full. You will never measure up to a holy God. You can never earn his favor. But what you can do is admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Turn from your rebellion and trust in Jesus. And your heavenly Father will be on your side. Let's pray together as we seek to abide with him. Father, we ask that you help us in our time of need today. Lord, teach us to pray with a sincere faith and a simple faith. Father, help us not to do religious activity to be noticed by men. But help us to be busy in religious activity because we love you and desire to obey you. And we want to honor you and bring you glory in our life. And Father, if there's anyone here or online that has never yielded their life to the authority of Jesus, help them realize how much you do love them. Help them realize the gospel truth of what Jesus did on the cross is that he did for them what they could never do for themselves, but what they needed the most. And it's only through his shed blood, it's only through his sacrifice that our sin can be forgiven. 
And Father, we thank you that though he gave his life and shed his blood and was buried on the third day, he rose again so that King Jesus stands victorious to offer eternal life. So I pray for that brother, for that sister who is struggling to surrender. Dear Holy Spirit of God, will you draw them close? And may they experience the joy of being able to simply pray, Abba, Father. And know that the God who created the heavens and the earth is the God who knit them together in their mother's womb, but now he's not just creator God and a holy God and a righteous God and a God who will judge, but he is now my Father who has provided for my greatest need through his Son, Jesus. And may they be able to commune with a sincere and simple faith. So, Father, draw us close, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.